0: Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Chapel Hill. How many people just love the nations? I love that our worship leader Eva is an Arab American girl whose dad was born in Bethlehem into an a Christian Orthodox family. That is from that area, and I just love the diversity of the kingdom that God releases upon us. And I want you to remember this theme verse for our series on women in ministry: "Women, God's secret weapon." This part three, I'm calling uh, "Women in Ministry: The Redemption Continues." How many know that our Redeemer lives? And the theme verse is this: Galatians three twenty seven. Look at this up on the screen. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Why? Because you're all one. We've all been made one wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And then you belong to Christ and you are all, everybody say all, you are all Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Tap your neighbor and say, you're an heir. That means you got an inheritance. Your daddy left you something. Don't forget, this is an important inheritance and a reminder from the word of God. From the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul gave in his first letter to any church he ever wrote. Next week, I'm going to deal with Paul. Who's ready for that. Let's look at the difficult passages that seem to indicate something. But what is the Lord really teaching through the whole weight of his scripture? Because remember this one thing. Today, we're going to deal with the women that surrounded Jesus' ministry. And did you know this? Jesus actually released the first person into ministry. And it was a woman. Okay, we'll we'll get to that towards the towards the latter part. But remember this in interpreting Paul's words in the Bible, you always have to view them through the lens of Jesus, not the other way around. Okay, all right, you guys all right? Okay, whoo, it got quiet in here. Now you might already be convinced on this issue about women in ministry or women in the church and what that role is. But even if, that's, even if that's so, the main goal of this series, I'll remind you, is to bring healing and reconciliation, right? And secondly, to provide sound biblical theology on the issue of women in the church in order that you might be able to discuss this with others, Because as I've said in the previous two weeks, this issue I've had come at me as a pastor from a lot of different areas, different people on campus, young adults, people at a Christian school, you know, these sorts of things. And so the Lord really wants to equip his body because I believe that the time is short. I don't know about you, but I'm listening for that trumpet call. Wouldn't it be nice if it happened in the next 30 seconds (laughs) and the trumpet sound (laughs) But the Lord is more interested in the process than in the end result. I mean, he's interested in the end result of him coming back. But it's the process of the bride of Christ. And yes, guys, that's you too. Remember, Galatians is the point is, forget about these human boxes that we put ourselves in. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm this or I'm that. No, you're all one in Christ. Your spirit is beings created in the image of the Father. So I really want hope that you can take this away. But uh, first, let's reflect on a powerful woman in ministry in the 20th century. Have you ever heard of Catherine Coleman? Yeah. Catherine Coleman had an encounter with Jesus at age 14. And yeah, there she is, the Miracle Lady. This is a, a title of a book that came out many years ago. Uh, she had a, a radical encounter. She was just 14 years old, so about my daughter Anna Grace's age. And uh, would you believe that soon after, I think with her, with a sister and a family member, she began an itinerant ministry. She began traveling around her region out in the, in the. Um, she was from Missouri in the Midwest. And she traveled extensively through the United States and abroad holding healing meetings between the 1940s and the 1970s. She was one of the most well-known healing ministers. Coleman had a weekly TV program in the 1960s and 70s called I Believe in Miracles that was aired nationally. Any old timers remember that TV show? All right, there's a couple people in the room. I I was before my time. She was one of the most well-known healing ministers. Coleman had that weekly TV program. She also had a 30-minute nationwide radio program, which featured sermons and frequently excerpts from her healing services in music and message. Her foundation was established in 1954, and its Canadian branch in 1970. Late in her life, she was supportive of the 1970s Jesus movement. How many remember the Jesus Revolution movie? You remember someone playing her showed up in that tent there in California during that movie. By 1970, she had moved to Los Angeles conducting healing services for thousands of people and was often compared to a woman I talked about last week, Amy Simple McPherson. Remember the founder of the four-square denomination in L.A.? She became well-known for her gift of healing, despite, as she often noted, having no theological training. She was friendly with Christian television evangelist Pat Robertson. I do remember Pat. I mean, yeah, his son's still on. And made guest appearances on CBN and on the network's flagship program, The 700 Club. Now listen to this. This woman ministered throughout these years of her life, and an estimated 2 million people reported that they were healed in her meetings over the years. Two million people, two million people were touched by Jesus. For someone that many say should have never been doing what she was doing, simply because of her gender. (laughs) So in part three today, I want to look at the women that surrounded Jesus' ministry. Last week, we looked at, number one, Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood. I love that story, the compassionate heart of Jesus who touched a woman that was unclean by the Jewish law. That, that was that, There should have been a severe punishment for that woman even daring to touch a man, much less a rabbi, with a flow of bu- blood in her body. But yet Jesus, not only did she touch him, but instead of Jesus becoming unclean by the law, Jesus cleansed her, and she was healed and set free. Number two, we looked at Jesus and Mary and Martha at their house. You remember they had the brother Lazarus, who was later um, raised from the dead after four days by his good buddy Jesus. Um, I just You can go to anywhere where you get podcasts and listen to those, too. Also, the audio is available on our website. And, of course, you know Facebook and YouTube, the streaming is there. But... Again, I just want, my heart is that the body of Christ can be equipped. Because if you've ever tried to sit down or or come across and have this conversation, sometimes it can be quite difficult. And so I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit would continue to equip us. Um, Understand this as we get to this third thing. And this is a quote from a theologian I wrote. He said, a third report of Jesus' contact with a woman further illustrates the transformation of attitudes towards women that Jesus initiated. I remind you, Jesus is perfect theology. In John 14, 9, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What what is he saying? In other words, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen what God is really like. What his attitudes and his perspectives are. So if you can't find it in the man Jesus, you might want to question all those theological ideas that you've been believing. Let's dive into Jesus and the woman at the well. Who loves this one? You probably know. John 4, click or flip in John 4 verse 5, and uh, we'll we'll read some of it but not all. Um, actually, I think I'm going to start in verse 3. John um, 4 verse 3. It says this, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Notice he initiates the conversation, not the other way around, right? A a Samaritan woman comes to just do her daily chores. That was probably expected of her. And Jesus says, hey, can you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, wait a second. How is it? That you being a Jew, probably a, in, a Jewish man, how is it you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so let's break this down a little bit. Number one, Jesus confronted the ethnic tension in Samaria. Do you know about that? Let me provide a little background. The district of Samaria lay between Judea in the south. Okay, Judea is in the south. If you look at that long country on the Mediterranean. I don't have the map up here. Judea is in the south and Galilee is in the north on the west side of the Jordan River. The land had once been part of the northern Hebrew kingdom of Israel. When Israel fell and were exiled into captivity in 722 before Christ, the Assyrians deported most of the Jewish population and resettled the area with people from other lands. The new settlers adopted the God of the land, Yahweh, while also holding to their old deities. The Samaritans of the first century were descendants of these people who claimed an allegiance to Yahweh, but whose claims were rejected by pure Jews. In other terms, they were just considered to be impure Jews half-breeds, or whatever you want, they wanted to call it. They just were considered to not really be fully worshipers of Yahweh because of this intermingling with these other people groups in addition to their deities. A deep hostility, therefore, existed between these neighboring peoples. You guys remember Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan? It gives you a vivid picture of the kind of hostility that existed there. Many Jews, rather than pass through Samaria on their way um, to or from Jerusalem, would take the much longer route around Samaria to the east, crossing and then recrossing the Jordan River. So Jesus was really out of the box here, just talking to any Samaritan, as he claimed to be a rabbi, not, nonetheless the Son of God um, or the Messiah. The second thing Jesus did is Jesus challenged gender norms in ancient Israel The woman who came to the well was shocked that Jesus would speak to her. This wasn't simply because she was a Samaritan, but she was a Samaritan woman. Because first, as we established last week in part two, it was unusual for a Jewish rabbi to speak to any woman directly. Do you remember the rabbinical quote advising men to not talk not much to a woman? Don't have anything to do. Don't even talk. They weren't supposed to, by the Jewish standards, to talk to a woman in public. We see what Jesus is doing here. Secondly, the rabbis were just as concerned about looking at a woman, not lustfully, but to keep from that, just looking at her. Do you remember in the Old Testament, Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, his impropriety with a prostitute in Genesis. In the extra biblical book of the Testament of Judah, Judah laments that he succumbed to a Canaanite woman and warns his sons against even looking at any woman. One rabbi went further to state, he who pays a woman by counting out coins from his hand to hers in order to gaze at her, even if the level of his Torah knowledge and good deeds has reached that of Moses... He will not escape the punishment of Gehenna or hell. This is the teaching. I'm trying to lay a foundation of the mental framework, of the cultural context, because it's not really easy for us to understand that in just a basic reading of the scripture. Third, on this point, surely Jesus' conversation in private with the woman at the well would have been viewed as shocking, if not depraved. In addition, women who were on their monthly cycle were considered nida. In, in so many words, it's like unclean for us, nida. And were to be avoided by men lest they become contaminated rabbinic teachings on Nada further classify Samaritan women as Nada. So it's not just something that women experience, but Samaritan women are that, period. It's their identity. They are unclean, period, from the day of their birth. This can be historically verified. Thus, according to the Pharisees, men of Christ's time should strictly avoid any kind of contact with a Samaritan women. Can you understand with this background, the surprise, the utter horror and shock and bewilderment when they come back from Chick Fil A with their combos, the disciples recorded here in John four twenty seven. put that up at this point. Here's what John 4, 27 says. There it is. His disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? It was just like, Peter, did you, Peter, what's going, James, um, Thomas, anybody like, what is up? What's going on here? You can feel their mental circuitry just sort of, you know, like smokes. They're just trying to figure out what this guy, I mean, we've seen who he is and what he can do, but this, you know, this is early on in his ministry as well. Let me just make some observations of what I believe the power of this conversation was. Number one, Jesus, Jesus' love Remove the fear, guilt, and shame of the Samaritan woman, first and foremost. I believe when she looked in his eyes, she saw perfect love. And she saw who she really was. Jesus was a revolutionary, completely shattering the cultural norms. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the woman you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you're a prophet. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Sorry if you're trying to follow along. I'm jumping around. In chapter 4, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Upon a glance or actually not just a glance, but in my early years of being a Christian and following Jesus, I thought this word of knowledge that Jesus got just nailed her with her sin. Like, man, Jesus got her that time. I mean, here's this immoral woman. She's had all these relationships, and Jesus is just reading her mail. And man, must she have just fallen to her face in repentance. To the contrary, he was acknowledging a deep wound of rejection in her soul. Five men had ultimately rejected her by writing, as Moses permitted in the law, a certificate of divorce. And the one she's now with will not even do her the dignity of marrying her. In Mark 10 verse 2, it says some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see when G- when Jesus looked at this woman she looked into the eyes of perfect love and her heart leapt with joy as for the first time she had encountered the father the lover of her soul notice she didn't find healing for her for her soul wound in perfect theological discussions It was not Jesus waxing eloquent beside the the well where it just set her free. It was an encounter with the love of the Father. This is the heart of Jesus we need to adopt in situations. Where is love? Not the world's distorted, perverted type of love, but the love of the Father. What unifies the church? Jesus said that the world would know the church by our what? By our love. It's men and women, young and old, black and white, Jew and Gentile, etc., etc., all walking together in unity. Did not the psalmist say it's like the oil coming down over the beard of Aaron, which is a symbolism for the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the priestly bride of Christ? This is the heart of Jesus in every situation. May he break our boxes. May he break us back out of our limited theological understandings. One theologian, a fascinating comparison with Nicodemus. Perhaps you remember just a chapter earlier from what we've been reading is John 3 where Jesus sits down with the Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, Nicodemus, where he asks him, like, well, what's going on here? And in layman's terms, Jesus says, you gotta go be born again. He's like, well, how can an old guy like me go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. By the water and the spirit, you'll be born again. This is what it means to be saved. And then the famous John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the whole world, That he gave his only beloved son. Well, it's interesting that John places the story of the Samaritan woman immediately after his account of Nicodemus' interview with Jesus in John 3. Nicodemus was not only a Jewish man, he was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. This description identifies Nicodemus as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. As a Pharisee, he was devoted to keeping every detail of God's law, including Nida, as interpreted by the rabbis. This description marked him as a person who had studied the Old Testament intensely, even memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. And who was supposedly qualified to interpret and apply God's law to every situation. So Dr. Sue and and Larry Richards write this about this. In contrast, the Samaritan woman is a person whose understanding of scripture is limited by her race and her gender. And whose classification as unclean or nida made her an object of revulsion. After all, she probably was only allowed to be educated up to a certain age. Certainly at this point, she had not studied intensively in the Jewish schools. Yet, it's the Pharisee Nicodemus who does not understand or respond to Jesus' teaching, while the Samaritan woman not only responds, but immediately hurries away to tell others about him. Isn't that interesting? This isn't just about gender. Even if Nicodemus did happen to be a woman, it's still interesting that the learned and the wise ones among us sometimes are the ones who get it least. Remember in the book of Acts when they noted about, I think it was Peter and John? These are uneducated and untrained men. But what do we know about them? They've been with him. They've been with Jesus. Isn't that the real thing that matters? So essentially, Jesus immediately sent this woman out as the first woman in ministry. You remember the end of that passage? She went back into her village. She told every she was the first evangelist recorded in the Bible, a woman. Next, Jesus and the female disciples that followed her. Are you guys, all right? All right. I'm going to be wrapping this up here. Note on. The Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke's gospel particularly pays special attention to Jesus' concern for the poor and the oppressed. He frequently mentions widows, and most references to women are not only positive, but seem to be crafted to break stereotypes and to cast women as equal with men in those qualities which count in Christ's kingdom. For example, Luke 7.36 One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now remember, this guy whose house he goes to is like Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's similar in his qualifications and his educational background, his spiritual authority in Israel. And it says that when a certain immoral woman, we know to be a prostitute, from that city heard he was eating there, She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Anybody in the room love this story? Breaking open our alabaster box, even in our pain, even our sin. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man? That goes around forgiving sins. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I ask you, where are our hearts? Where are our hearts this morning? Simon, the Pharisee, knowing the woman was a prostitute, concluded that Jesus could not possibly be a prophet. A prophet would know the sin in this woman's life. And the Pharisee assumed no man of God would permit the polluting touch of such a person. Also continued in the very next remember there weren 't chapters and verses when the Bible was originally written, but in our bibles that 's the end of Luke seven. go to luke eight one soon afterward, this happened. Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. Who do you think Jesus took with him on this tour it 's a ministry trip. Anybody want to go on a mission trip? It's like, you want to go to Uganda with Scott and Melissa? You want to go to Armenia? You want to go to wherever? Jesus began the tour. This was the beginning parts of his ministry. Announcing the gospel, the good news. And he took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. The woman we just read about. You want to come along? Come along. Did she have time for the 12-step class to join the, cur- the church, the new members? the You know, she hadn't yet done the alpha course. We don't even know if she's baptized yet. Come along and tell about what Jesus has done for you. Among them, too, were Mary Magdalene, who was another woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. You remember the chosen depiction of that? How about Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager? I don't even have time to get into the depth of what that is. Herod? We know a little something about wicked Herod. Susanna, perhaps? Many other women who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. See, in first century Israel, as we've established, it was not permitted for a man to speak with a woman in public, much less to travel from city to city together. Of the many women who were in the company of disciples that followed Jesus were all of these that we just read. These women were inevitably doing what? Providing meals, washing, mending clothes, perhaps, giving their money. They were women of means. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had the money, giving the money for lodging or food and travel, perhaps. Mary Magdalene is mentioned several times, including at his death and resurrection, as one of the first to discover the stone that had been rolled away. You remember at first, Peter doesn't even believe her. Peter doesn't believe her account of the resurrection. So she goes back to the tomb. And what is the result of her going back? After Peter's unbelief, she becomes the first person to see and hear the resurrected Jesus. Did you know that in a court of law in first century Palestine, the testimony of a woman would be thrown out? Probably not even heard because simply she's a woman. It's not reliable. (laughs) If you wanted your book to be reliable based on this time period, would the first person who testified that Jesus did indeed resurrect from the dead, be a woman. It's exactly what Luke records. It's exactly the heart of God. Finally, even on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had resurrected and was about to go away to heaven, among the 120 that gathered in the room, upper room, there were many women with the 11 remaining apostles and other men. So here's a question I had. If Jesus was so in favor of breaking stereotypes and empowering women, why did he not choose a woman to be among the 12 disciples? Have you ever wondered that? The following is one theologian's biblical position that I find compelling. I'll submit to you. They said the absence of female disciples is seen by many, as an indication that it was not his will that women be in leadership. If it was his will that women be elevated to the places of leadership, why were there no female disciples? Now, what, this is really good. I hope you can hear this. They go on to say, to the Jews, the number 12, what does it represent? The number 12 represented the government of God's kingdom. That kingdom was founded upon the 12 tribes of the 12 sons of Jacob. Yes. So the 12 named disciples correspond to the 12 tribes. Listen to this. Jesus was making a prophetic statement to the Jewish people and specifically the religious leaders. The statement is not only in the use of the number 12, but also in the gender. Jesus did not choose 12 men because men are superior or as a mandate for future leadership of his body, rather, but because the symbolism he was putting before the people has in it 12 men. Because it's interesting to note that after Acts chapter 1, after the establishment of the new covenant through the blood of Jesus, the 12 disciples as the 12 disappears from the landscape of early Christianity. By choosing men, not women, to serve as his 12 disciples, Jesus was not making a sexist statement, nor was he denying women a future leadership role in God's kingdom. Next week, I want to submit to you that this is the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul as well. Instead, he was using a prophetic symbolism the Jews knew well to give them the message That he was sent by the God of Israel to call them to a new and living way of salvation. Just as old Jerusalem was founded on the 12 patriarchs, the new Jerusalem was founded on the 12 disciples. Think of it this way. In a similar way that he chose to be revealed through one ethnic group. But we know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the whole world that he gave all ethnos is that that literal word there in the greek is ethnos god loved every ethnic group does that make the jews better than no they're the chosen people and assume that he revealed himself through them so on a similar way the same is true about gender here among the 12 disciples let me conclude with this I believe throughout these times together in this series that Jesus wants to bring healing. Whether you're a man or a woman, wherever you are, Jesus wants to reconcile your heart and redeem your hurts. I know that there are people sitting here in this room that the Holy Spirit is maybe reminding you of some things that you tucked away. Some hurts, some disappointments, some shame, perhaps. And I'm not just focused upon this, this topic, but whatever it is, maybe you're like, you feel like that woman who broke open the alabaster box. Not as far as being a prostitute, but you're just saying, hey, Matthew, you don't know where I've been. You don't understand what I've done. How could a holy God possibly love me? Because he does. It's not based upon what you've done. It's based on who you are. You are a son and a daughter of the most high God. And he loves you and he paid the ultimate price that you can be forgiven just like her. I want you to know that, you know, even beyond our time here to pray for each other on Sunday morning, we also have a healing prayer teams of people that they love to get together with you individually and as the Holy Spirit is bringing things up to just simply be another person there to help you pray through it. If, if, you're, if you're like, hey, where can I get in touch? with? Let me know. I'll put you in contact because I just want you to know that I feel the Lord and we care deeply that not only we have some encounter moment, which is primary, but in that encounter moment, we go the distance with God. And say, Lord, I give you permission. Come inside of my mind, will, and my emotions. Come inside of my soul realm. Because, you know, we say a prayer, we are born again. But how many know that the moment that we're born again begins a process? It's not an ending It begins a process where God comes in his love and his grace. And who needs mercy? I know I do. He comes and we grow in our recognition and our awareness of becoming more and more like Jesus. That will never end. And the same is true about you know, women and men in the church and all of these things. Like God intends to finish what he started. He is coming back for a pure, spotless bride. But it's not up to the bride to just get herself ready. Jesus is doing that. It should encourage your heart. Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.